Welcome to Politics and Reform, where we'll be talking about a variety of topics pertaining to criminal justice reform, police brutality, systemic racism, and issues within our regional communities. We're here to talk and inform not only ourselves, but our audience with the opinions and critiques of those individuals that practice in these fields. Today, we're here with Rachel Marshall, the Director of Communications and Policy Advisor in the San Francisco District Attorney's Office and a champion of progressive politics in the Bay Area. Rachel, it's great to talk with you today. It's so nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And I apologize again. There's a school next door and they're playing some Michael Jackson. And if there's <laughs> background noise, that's what it is. So I apologize. No problem. In the world of COVID, I mean, I'll accept anything at this point. We're all working from home and dealing with all that that entails. So you may have an appearance from my dog as well. So I apologize. It's all good. It's all good. Um, but, so without further ado, let's get started with the first question. Um, sure. So Rachel, uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your activism. You know, how did you get involved in politics and justice and law? Yeah, so I have been involved in um, social justice issues since almost as much as I can remember. Um, from a young age, I started a Save the Earth Club at age 10 years old and became a vegetarian. So I was yeah. always looking for ways to make an impact and still a vegetarian um, many, many more years, more than I'll admit later. Right. Um, so I, I also grew up, though, you know, particularly focused on criminal justice because I had a father, have a father who had been very involved in criminal defense issues and was working to combat wrongful convictions and the death penalty in Illinois, which is where I grew up in Chicago. And there was a systemic uh, problem with wrongful convictions, specifically on death row. So my father had some high-profile cases, and I was very uh, much aware of those at a really young age. So I became very aware of systemic problems that can lead to real injustice. Mm -hmm. And for when I was around your age, I really wanted to go into journalism mm -hmm. and I loved writing and I thought that that was for sure what I was going to do. And then I went to college and was very involved in, in politics and in protesting and social justice issues more generally. A lot of um, feminist issues were really my focus then and civil rights issues more broadly. And that led me into teaching. And I was a teacher in um, the Bronx outside in New York. And I was really, really once again drawn to criminal justice issues because I would have students who would have something going on in their lives that was clearly about the criminal legal system and I wanted to fight for them. And one student in particular didn't show up to school one year and I kept asking his friends, where's this guy? Like, he's one of my favorite students. And everyone kept kind of making different excuses for where he was. And then finally someone said, look, he's in jail. Um, he got, he took the rap for something he didn't do. And I just remember feeling so angry that I couldn't do more, couldn't find out more. Um, and so that led me pretty directly into um, law school where I became a public defender, after which I became a public defender. And I was a public defender in Alameda County for eight years. I did all sorts of different kinds of work there, ranging from misdemeanors to felony trials to juvenile work was my last assignment right before I came and then um, was very, very involved in politics all the while at the same time. I was writing a lot about some of the systemic problems and speaking out about some of the systemic problems that I saw as a public defender and the institutional barriers and the discrimination that I saw my clients facing every day. And then aside from that, I was also really interested in politics more broadly, like yourself. I did a lot of campaign work for mostly national elections. And so when DA Boudin got elected, um, it was, it sort of led me to do something I never thought I'd do, which is to work for a prosecutor. And um, we're really doing things very differently in San Francisco. And it 
in a joke that in some ways combines every single interest that I've always had of my interest in politics, my interest in social right. justice, criminal justice, as well as um, journalism. So it, it's kind of in many ways a perfect job for me. Right. I think uh, the only thing that I don't agree with what you said is I can never become a vegetarian. <laughs> there you go. I don't know. But the rest of it, I think it's it's very on I'll my 10-year-old self if you want and try to convince you. But yeah. now I'm a little bit less preachy about that. Yeah. Um, but you, you kind of you kind of got into my next question, which is um, kind of describe the current state of the criminal justice system in San Francisco um, sure. and, and maybe talk about some of your accomplishments with DA Boudin, because I think that's really important for the viewers to know. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's hard to talk about anything these days without talking about COVID-19 and the right. pandemic effect on pretty much life as we know it. And that certainly applies to the criminal justice system as well, because um, obviously when COVID um, first started, started spreading, we were very concerned. We still are very concerned about the jails and not, yeah. not wanting there to be, as D.A. Boudin often describes it, an epidemic within the pandemic. Um, and also the courts came to a close for a significant amount of time. And there still is a lot of backlog and a lot of um, changes that have resulted in delaying cases where we can, nonviolent cases, things like that. So it is the criminal justice system, like the rest of the world, I think is in an unusual space right now. But putting that aside, there have been some tremendous changes under D.A. Boudin's leadership in the past few months alone. One of which is the fact that the jail population is so much less than it um, yeah. It was historically um, the jail population. It fluctuates, so um, I don't know what today's. I can't remember today's specific number, but um, I believe it's been in the 700s, and it's about a 40% um, decline um, generally um, from what the jail population had been previously, and that's pretty dramatic and is pretty exciting because so much of what DA Boudin campaigned on was an end to mass incarceration. Right. And now we see that happening. We see that happening really quickly. In some ways, accelerated because of COVID, because of the urgent need to reduce the jail population to allow for social distancing and to prevent the spread that we've seen tragically in places like San Quentin State Prison and in places nationally in Ohio, for example. Even in so, my uh, San Rita Jail? Even and in San Rita Jail, of course. Yeah. More recently, yeah, Santa Rita Jail as well, which is awful and heartbreaking. And I'm sure some of my former clients are, are I know they're still so um, so I think that's a huge piece of what has been happening is the decarceration in San Francisco, which is great to see, obviously not, not great to see that, you know, the cause in, in part is because of such a tragic situation, but it is inspiring to see the way that, um, D.A. Boudin and others in the justice community have responded so quickly in San Francisco to hopefully, fingers crossed, continue to avoid some of what we've seen replicated elsewhere, um, in terms of the spread. Um, but some of the other bigger changes involve, you know, the other big thing that's happened in 2020, of course, has been the rise of protests in response to the murder of George Floyd. Right, and right. that led, and this is what's been so exciting to me because I, I took, I became, um, in, I started working for DA Boudin during the pandemic. So my job has been oh. very much. Okay. Yeah, okay. I started in April. Yeah, so the decarceration was starting before I, before I got here, but the George Floyd um, responses have all been while I was here and so I had the opportunity to work on a lot of them and it's been very exciting um, to see how quickly DA Boudin has pushed into action a lot of really significant police reforms. Things like calling for police unions to not have the power to influence prosecutors right. by giving their money and I can talk about that more at length. Um, you know things like saying that we will not prosecute cases where 
um, someone is accused of resisting a police officer or um, anything involving, you know, the credibility of an officer specifically, right. unless we've reviewed the body camera footage, unless we've made sure that it's not a cover up for some other kind of charge. Um, things like making sure that we're protecting victims of police violence by making sure that they can get compensation. So if someone, you know, loses a loved one or severely injured by a police officer who uses excessive force, we want to make sure that that person is entitled to victims compensation like any other crime victim would. So it's, you know, those are just a sample of some of the reforms that DA Boudin has implemented in regards to police accountability. Um, but the other big one that I hope we'll get to discuss, and I can absolutely not take any credit for this, aside from the fact that I was cheering from the sidelines because I was not working for him yet, is, is the elimination of bail, which I know we'll get to, but is, we'll get to. <laughs> okay, I'll hold off on that, but it's just yeah. such a triumph and it's such a, an exciting thing that's happened. So I, what I, I guess I will say in summary, that the state of criminal justice in San Francisco is rapidly changing and there's a lot more um, justice that we're pushing for every day. But of course, at the same time, there is this devastating pandemic and there's a lot more work to be done. So um, I hesitate to, you know, I'm not trying to proclaim that we are done with the fight in any, in any sense heard, or to deny how scary it is for those who are incarcerated right now in right. um, this crisis. Right, and if you ever feel like it, you're always welcome to come back to Alameda County. I think, I think that'd be great. Um, we could really use uh, some support over here as well. Um, you know, both you and, and District Attorney Boudin have, have spoken and advocated for bail reform, and it ultimately led to the stopping of cash bail in San Francisco very recently. Um, and so my question is, what are the next steps to ending the gross inequities against individuals, especially in a low socioeconomic status and, you know, the minority and African-American classes? Yeah, I think there's so much to do there. It's such a good question. Um, and before we jump into it more generally, sorry, the dog is being a little demanding. Um, good. Before we get into, into all that, I just want to note that um, the DA asked, has implemented a policy where no one in the office and his office can ask for a bail to be imposed. So in other words, a prosecutor cannot say, um, I'm asking for this person to be held unless they can post $85,000 bail. Um, it's either we're asking them to be held because we think the public safety concerns are right, yes. it, or we're saying no. But unfortunately, there are still judges who at times will say, I'm going to set bail anyway, despite the fact that the DA is not asking for it. So um, so we need judges to go along with, with our elimination of bail. Um, but I also think there's so many ways in which our system discriminates, particularly against people of color and the poor. Um, to talk about the financial piece for a second, there's still so many other harms that the system does financially. The fines and fees in our system are outrageous. Um, I think one of the things that doesn't get talked about a lot too is some of the fines that are associated with things like having a car, not even fines, but just costs of having a car, DMV registration, and how a lot of times if you miss some of those fees, how they add up and they can lead to your license being suspended and all sorts of problems that are really just related to poverty. Um, but I think the, the, the bigger question that affects both low-income communities and communities of color is the over-policing. I think that that is a huge change that needs to happen because not only is it a fundamental loss of dignity to feel like you are in a community where the police are infringing on your privacy, where they are assuming that you are a criminal just from going, going to your house at night or leaving your house at night, um, but also it you know leads to higher rates of arrests and convictions and not because um, people in those communities are committing more crimes, um, but just because the over-policing that happens there. And then of course that leads a cycle that the criminal justice system so often does 
whereby people are getting convictions, which then makes it hard for them to get a job and then they're stigmatized. And then that creates all sorts of other issues that can sometimes make the public less safe because now someone may not have an option other than to turn to criminal behavior sometimes um, in order to provide food for their family. Um, so there's all sorts of complicated um, issues that are often cyclical in terms of over-policing and in terms of the way that the system treats communities of color and particularly low-income communities. Sorry, there's so much noise out there. <laughs> it's all good. Um, I don't mind a little Michael Jackson these days. <laughs> I can't even tell with Michael Jackson anymore, but it's, it's loud, whatever it is. Right. Um, but I think I, I agree with you. Um, in my brief conversation with D.A. Boudin, I asked him a, a question about one of the things he said um, in his inauguration speech about grasping, you know, radical ideas at the root. And I think that both, you know, those criminal justice advocates, I think they need to focus on, well, what is the root reason? You know, if I were to fundamentally lay down the reasons for incarceration or the reasons for mass incarceration and what alternatives are offered, I think yeah. I need to go to the pure reasoning and yeah. target that. And it's a matter, like you said, there's a lot to be done. And it, it's one step at a time, especially in a sclerotic bureaucracy that I'm sure you face on a daily basis. Um, but my next question, I think, um, is more uh, prevalent to nowadays, which mm -hmm. is in your podcast, Station Justice, which I will plug down below for those of my viewers that are interested, um, because I think they should take a listen at it. And it's a good time to take a listen, because we just took our first season break, so it's time to catch up on all those episodes. Right, right. right. She's subtly marketing, by the way. <laughs> Not so subtly. Uh, but uh, you once described protests as, quote, memorable and equally futile. Um, and with the Not protests generally, a specific protest. Just right, right, right. And with the recent protests regarding, you know, Black Lives Matter uh, and that entire movement, including defund the police, you know, how do we as people, activists, or in your case, lawyers, you know, continue to search for this justice and transcend it? Yeah, so I, I think the comment I was making, if I remember correctly, was referring to um, D.A. Boudin and I were talking about some of our memories of protests yeah, yeah. before Black Lives Matter. And I think I was telling a story of protesting outside of George W. Bush's inauguration yeah, yeah. Um, when I was, I won't say my age, but when I was quite young, when I was in college. <laughs> and um, and I, I, was say, I was joking about how it was futile. Um, and I think he was talking about Iraq war protests and we were talking yeah. about how they were equally futile. And, and I said that sort of playfully, but the truth is I don't really believe that any protest is futile. I think that there's a value and a beauty in protest. And indeed, much of what I did as a public defender, frankly, felt like it was protest. There are times when I'm in a courtroom and I'm standing up for someone and I'm, I'm protesting the injustice of the system a lot of the times um, as I'm trying to represent that person. So. Um, I, I would never try to diminish the significance of protests, and I think the Black Lives Matter movement in particular stands out as how, at how powerful protests can be in affecting change. And I think the protests in response to George Floyd's murder in particular, uh, where millions of people filled with righteous rage are flooding the streets, um, demanding change, and really having America reckon with its real racist white supremacy culture um, in a way that I've never seen, and I know people who are far older than I am have said they've never seen. And right. both Angela, I'm not going to just put the podcast, I promise, but Angela Davison in her episode mentioned that this, she'd never seen a moment like this, including in the civil rights movement of the 60s. So I, I, I do think protest is tremendously significant, whether or not it impacts change on the scale of this. Right. That said, um, I think 
sometimes there's a desire to just implement real policy and that's part of what's led me to this current role um, because I am hungry for change and I'm hungry for seeing actual um, transformational policies be implemented. And so that's what's been so exciting about working for DA Boudin because as lawyers and at some level as policymakers, now that we're in this role, right. um, we really can say, here are the system systemic problems that we observe and now how do we fix them? Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it, I'm not saying that one is better than protest. I think they're both really necessary. I think in many ways, as we just talked about earlier, a lot of the policies that we were able to so quick, quickly implement in response to George Floyd's murder might not have been as successful had it not been for what happened and all the protests um, sort of demanding change. And then we were able to offer that change. So I think that they're really linked and that there are so many ways um, to affect change in this country and in our communities. And it's really great to see people from all different approaches coming together and trying to demand change right now to show that Black Lives Matter and to hold police accountable. Right. And I think, I think the reasons that I asked that question specifically is because, um, well, I, I kind of wanted to know, you know, there's, there's a difference between performative activism, which I see a lot, especially in my generation. Mm -hmm. And in that cycle of just, you know, kind of glamour and, and gaudiness that people try to depict, I think that pe I think individuals have to realize that it goes way beyond just protesting. And that's why I tend to ask this to those that, you know, practice in their fields. I think the protests show the movement. I think the protests, you know, they're invaluable to the sense that, well, it shows public outrage. And well, in a democracy built by the people, um, even now in these <laughs> tumultuous times, I think that it's important to realize what protests signify rather than just, you know, go to one or two and expect substantive change. And you know, this kind of relates to my next question, which is, you know, what advice do you have to those individuals looking to change the norm that have visited these protests, signed the petitions, potentially even donated? What's the next step for these people? Because there's plenty of them around. I think that's a really great question. And I think step one is, and this is, you know, this may sound like I'm dodging the question, but it's not, is to continue that protest. Because I think what tends to happen is that a lot of times we see in this country, I think, I don't know if you watched the DNC last night, but I think it was Eric Garner's mother who said something to the effect of, you know, don't stop, um, keep the pressure on, because what often happens is that we see this surge of, you know, interest and passion and fury after something tragic happens, and then it dies down and there's no pressure on politicians to make those changes anymore. Right. So we have to keep that pressure going, and a lot of times that means to continue the protests. Um, the other thing I would say is get involved in local politics. You are a great model of this. Um, but but and, and not just local, state, and federal as well, but really get involved and know the legislation that's up, know the, the politics, know the players, and then do things like call in. I mean, we just had last week, and I was so inspired by this, um, our ethics proposal with several other district attorneys where we're calling on the California State Bar to say, hey, prosecutors, you can't be running for office and taking money from police unions when we know that you're going to be investigating those officers who are members of those unions for use of force cases. That's a conflict of interest. And we had members of the public, including students, calling in and saying, hey, here's how this issue impacts me. Here's what I want. And that's a way that we can hold politicians accountable and make sure that um, legislative change is happening and that protesters can take it another step. But I, 
the biggest thing I'd say is just don't stop being vocal, get the word out, organize people you know, have those hard conversations sometimes that can feel like you're just affecting one person. But if each one of those people that you talk to has those conversations with hundreds of other people over the course of their lives, you really can have a huge reach. So I think we have to keep the pressure on, but I also really encourage young people to get involved, learn more, learn how to um, really affect systemic change by putting pressure on politicians. Right. And um, I think putting pressure on politicians is the best way to get things done, especially when we put them in office. Or run for office too. That's the other piece. I got I got a couple years. You. I'm looking at you. I know you're not old enough yet, but I see I see it. Uh, well, well, you can you can sign me a donation in a couple of years. How about that? <laughs> there we go. Um, but moving on to my next question. Um, hypothetically, let's just say I gave you God's hand. You know, I don't want to assume you believe in a specific religion, but in this case, I gave you all the power in the world, your omnipotence, um, and you could change any law, any procedure, any rule regarding criminal justice reform, mass incarceration, police accountability. Um, and I would ask, what would you do? You know, what key areas would you focus on? Would it be broad or would it be specific? You know, would it be philosophical or would it be to the nuance? Yeah, I think it'd be all of the above. I mean, one of the issues that has always mattered to me the most and which makes me so proud to work for DA Boudin is the issue of bail. Um, you know, when I was a public defender, just seeing clients who were stuck in jail because here's one example, a woman I represented once who was in custody, I believe for over 30 days, if I remember correctly, for stealing a few slices of pizza from a Mountain Mike's pizzeria. Not even good quality pizza, I might say. Um, <laughs> but, no, but it was really tragic and she suffered with mental illness. And the idea that our system said it's acceptable to put you in jail over that $4 slice of pizza or whatever it was, um, was really disgusting to me. And just because she was too poor to, pay, to post bail. Um, and I think I saw that on more serious cases, of course, too, where people's lives are upended simply because of their poverty. And then you see someone charged with a very serious crime and able to post bail simply because they come from money, not because they are any less of a risk to public safety. In fact, a lot of times they're more of a risk when they have those financial means to escape. So I, I think bail reform, which I'm so proud of DA Boudin um, for his work in San Francisco, needs to be broader, needs to be national. Um, the U.S. is one of only two countries in the world, the other being the Philippines, that uses cash bail to begin with. So we need that to be eradicated altogether. Um, but the other thing that always stands out to me, and it's kind of a broad answer, but it really applies in a lot of narrow ways, is sentencing reform. Because I think one of the things that is really lost on most people, and, and this is really California I, that I know about the most, but it's certainly true nationally as well as federally, is we just have these crazily harsh sentences. Um, in this country where we end up sending people away for far too long for things that are not that serious um, or for things that are serious but give no opportunity for rehabilitation or for the fact that someone might be a very different person at age 19 from when they're 40 years old. And the idea that we've already given up on that person and we've given up on so many people by saying you're gonna do 20 years, 30 years, life, whatever it is. I think that that encompasses so much of the justice of the criminal justice system is how much time that either people are facing so that it leads them to plead guilty mm -hmm. um, or how much time they're actually doing. So I think if you combine those two things, you combine the criminalization of poverty and the ways in which bail pressures people who are innocent to plead guilty just to get out of jail. Um, and you also combine that with the harsh sentences that make people afraid to fight their cases um, or when they lose their cases, just basically can oftentimes lead to their lives just being destroyed, just being over. 
as a result of what happened without really any opportunity for, for change. Um, I think that's a huge part of what is wrong with our criminal legal system in this country. Yeah, no, I, I agree. <laughs> um, but, you know, talking about progressive prosecutors, which I do consider you one to be, um, what does that exactly mean to those that may not know? And yeah. how do you emerge kind of victorious in a defined minority representation of justice? And maybe what I mean by that is, I don't think all prosecutors are progressive enough. Certainly not. And we've gotten this far for specific reasons, right? And it, I think I've seen a, you know, optical change within society to focus on progressive prosecutors. So maybe kind of elaborate on what that means for the rest of us. Absolutely. Um, I've had this this debate with um, with Dave Boudin before because he often quotes Tiffany Caban who says that being a progressive prosecutor means being a decarceral prosecutor, mm -hmm. meaning really focusing on not contributing to mass incarceration and and reducing it and combating it actively. And I think it's broader than that, as I've said to him, because I think it has to encompass fighting uh, the racism in our system. And, and it has to include police accountability. It has to include um, you know, the, the criminalization of poverty, which is of course, a lot of these issues are linked to mass incarceration. Um, but I think being a progressive prosecutor means focusing on the root causes of crime really not falling into fear-mongering and traps or cliches around what public safety means and really trying to focus on the humanity of everybody in the system. So a lot of times traditionally prosecutors have only focused on the victims and that's certainly a piece and an important piece. And although I will say a lot of times even traditional prosecutors haven't really done that. They've tokenized victims. They, they've exploited them to, to assist them in getting convictions but haven't actually honored what they what they're seeking, whether they might want restorative justice and an opportunity to really feel whole again and, and have that kind of justice. Um, but certainly traditional prosecutors have cared very little about the person who commits an offense and really thinking about how do we address that person's needs, not just because we have compassion for that person as we should, but also because we recognize that that makes everyone safer in the long run. Because if we actually get to the heart of the matter and we address the systemic problem we can ensure that that person doesn't cycle through the system again when the problem is never fixed and when instead we send them oftentimes to prison or to some form of incarceration where they come out with less opportunity, less skill, less education, more destabilized, oftentimes losing housing, losing any stability in their lives, right. which of course makes people much more likely to reoffend. So I think being a progressive prosecutor means coming at the system from a very, very different goal and from a very, very different perspective and idea about how to achieve justice. Um, and it is something that, as you said, most prosecutors are not. And we also have to be very careful about, now that it's a very trendy term, not just allowing people to adopt that right. label. Superficially. Superficially. Exactly. exactly. You were talking before about sort of tokenizing or sort of you know using empty phrases. And I agree with you that that can often happen when something's in vogue. I never thought I'd say that Prosecutors are in vogue. I certainly didn't want to be a prosecutor until uh, very recently with for DA Boudin specifically, but I think we have to make sure that we're holding our progressive prosecutors feet to the fire to make sure that they are actually doing the work, actually promoting justice and actually, um, you know, doing the kinds of things that we've seen DA Boudin already do so quickly and there are other models across the country, but we need to continue to make sure that people running under that platform are really doing the same and are really advancing our um, common goals. Right. And kind of similarly, I, I would like to ask, you know, progressive politics, progressive 
prosecutors, you know, um, and especially now activism has, has been dubbed kind of radicalism by a certain majority of people, whether it be, you know, nationally, federally, or even at a local or state level, there is, you know, dire polarization that ultimately impacts cities, counties, states, and our country, of course. Um, and I would like to know, you know, is, is radicalism the answer to reforming criminal the criminal justice system? And, you know, what do you think merits a true change in the systems ingrained in the American justice system? Well, I think true change comes from, like I said, from, from coming at it from completely different perspectives and bringing in um, new voices, um, bringing in people who are directly impacted by the system and who have experience in the system, whether that means formerly incarcerated public defenders or former public defenders like me and D.A. Boudin and people who come at it from a variety of angles. Um, but I also think that, I guess I reject the idea that you know, progressive prosecution is radicalism. In many ways, it's not in the sense that, you know, you are working inside the system, right? I, I'm, I'm working for the government. I'm now, my badge says I'm an assistant district attorney. Mm -hmm. And so we have a radical approach to it and we're radically trying to transform the system. But in many ways, we're also doing the things that all prosecutors try to do, like promote public safety, protect victims. Um, we're just coming at it from a way that's actually focused on those things as opposed to just approaching them and, and thinking about them in the in a same old tired way that wasn't really serving anyone, certainly wasn't serving actual public safety. So I, I also want to remind everyone that what's radical in one place is very different from somewhere else. So things that DA Boudin can do in San Francisco are maybe not things that someone in a rural county can, can do or that a population is necessarily looking for. It may be radical in another jurisdiction just to say, I'm against the death penalty, which is something that hasn't been radical in San Francisco for quite some time. So um, I guess I, I hesitate to use the, that term. Um, I do think that we need people on every side of this fight. So I don't think that the answer to criminal justice reform is solely progressive prosecutors. I don't think that it's, I think we need judges who are approaching things differently. I think we continue to need great public defenders to ensure that defendants are getting um, their fair day in court and are getting someone who's really fighting for them. And we do, sorry? And are funded, I'd like to say. Funded, exactly. We do absolutely need progressive prosecutors. And I think the reason why I am working on this side right now is because the fact of the matter is that, as you alluded to by saying the funding, prosecutors have so much disproportionate power in the system. So what is, I guess, is radical is the idea to use that power in a way to promote justice in a really different way. And that is something that I hope we see more of in this country. I think we are seeing more of it. And I hope that people like you and the public continue to make demands and look for more progressive prosecutors so we can make sure that the system works for all of us. Of course. And you know, I definitely agree. I think radicalism needs to be redefined in the traditional stereotype. And I think, you know, taking into account politicians that have certain ideals um, need to be properly discussed. And I'll just, I'll leave it at that. Um, I'd like to thank you um, for joining me on this uh, YouTube channel and thank uh, DA Boudin for giving me his time. I really appreciate what you guys do in San Francisco. Um, like I said, you're always welcome back in Alameda County. Um, we need as much as we can get. And I'll definitely be following your podcast in season two. <laughs> well, we're so excited to have people like you and your listeners who care about criminal justice from 
you know, maybe earlier than most people do and some people never get there and we're really eager for ideas. Like I said, we're doing some amazing things in San Francisco, but um, there's lots more for us to do, lots more change that needs to happen. So I really welcome um, input from you and I'm really appreciative of your time as well. And if you're ever looking for an internship, um, we are taking applications. So we'd love to, we'd love to have you. I'll definitely, I'll, I'll definitely reach out uh, when I need it. First, I got to help a couple other people win. I know you have your hands tied with all your campaigns, but. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, thank you. And, and I'll definitely be sharing this uh, with you. And hopefully I think you'll be doing the same. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much. All right, have a great day. You too, take care. Bye-bye.